Friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. I'm so pleased that you've joined us today. My name is Chris Rogers and I am your host uh, on this podcast. And in this podcast, we look at the Christian faith uh, through fresh eyes in some ways. We want to approach things uh, with new perspectives. We want to understand the simplicity of our faith, but also understand the background and the history of it and all that kind of stuff. And, and in today's podcast, I have got Michelle Guinness. She's a writer, she's an author, she's a speaker. And uh, the reason I want to interview her today is because, and the key question is this, if, if Jesus is Jewish, why aren't we Jewish? Okay, because uh, Michelle is a messianic Jew, uh, Jewish by lineage, uh, but found Jesus. And she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So this phrase, messianic Jew. Uh, a Jew who believes Jesus is Lord. And her understanding and perspective on the Christian faith is just beautiful because she really understands where Jesus is coming from and, and why he does what he does and why he says what he says. So in today's episode, we will be talking about Jesus being Jewish and how it helps us understand uh, some of the things that he says in his teaching, how the context of Jesus makes so much sense to us uh, when we understand where he's from. So friends, welcome to Making Disciples. My name is Chris Rogers. And if you find this episode interesting, we would love it if you would feel like you could share it, you could repost it, you could like it, you could leave us a comment and give us uh, topics that you would like us to look at. Engage with us uh, in this podcast. So friends, welcome. Uh, we're pleased that you're here. And here is today's episode with Michelle Guinness. If Jesus was Jewish... Why aren't we? Michelle Guinness, welcome to Making Disciples, the podcast. I am so pleased to have pinned you down and be able to spend this time with you. You're a writer, uh, you're a speaker, uh, you uh, have been... Um, quite influential in my family's life for, for many years. So thank you for joining me on Making the Disciples. Chris, thanks for having me. It's a real privilege. It's a real pleasure to, to come on the show. Right, I want, I want to get straight in, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the punch question I want to ask you is this. If Jesus was Jewish and never claimed to eradicate Judaism, in fact, he came to be the culmination of it, the bringing together of it, why is it that we as Christians are not Jewish? Help me understand it, that. Yeah, I know. Um, that was one of the questions I first asked as a young Jewish girl who came to faith in Christ in my late teens. And I expected the faith, perhaps naively, to be much more Jewish than it was. I mean, I had gone to a Church of England school, so I'd seen very traditional churchianity, and it really did not, um, well, it was just so alien, so different from anything I knew as a Jew. And then I thought, well, you know, the real Christians, maybe I'll, maybe they'll be much more Jewish. And I remember going into a church and, you know, looking at all these sober faces and singing deadly hymns and thinking, I've landed on Mars. <laughs> I mean, what is this? It's nothing that I recognize. And um, it took me a long time to start looking at church history and trying to work out what exactly had happened. But very early on in the life of the church, um, there was a Gentile takeover, a non-Jewish takeover. 
at first, the early church was completely Jewish, but within about 50 years, the gospel spread, which was wonderful. And of course, there were all the tussles between Paul and Peter about how Jewish do we tell these Gentiles to be? What bits of the Jewish law do we make them keep? Do they have to have, the men have to have that little operation? All of those sorts of things. And gradually they felt, no, they didn't. The, 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 the Gentiles didn't need to do that, and they were just told that there were some laws that they had to keep, like not eating blood, and um, and and abstain from all sorts of immorality. So there were no sort of you have to be Jewish anymore. And then gradually, over the next fifty years, um, a, a substantial number of, of of Jewish people within the Jewish community um, were very hostile to the gospel. And more and more, the Gentiles wanted to eradicate any Jewish influence from the church, which is exactly what they started to do until, I mean, it started quite early on, I think about 100 years after the church. You had to have, for example, a certain leader of the church to say the right words before you could have communion. And the effect of that was to take the breaking of bread out of the home. Um, into a church building and more and more the church building became the center of people's lives not the home until eventually even the spiritual education of children was devolved to the church and it gave the clergy who were all male then <laughs> gave them immense power and immense control and I think very slowly we've been fighting to get it back yeah, where does the synagogue fit in? So I know that synagogues was relatively modern in terms of Jesus's day. It was a newish thing. But where had the gathering in a building? Wasn't that just the Christians creating a Jewish thing, but rather than being called synagogue, it was called church? What, what happened there between the two? No, the synagogue was very, very different. I mean, even the temple was divided in two and you had um, house, or, or, or not the temple so much as the tabernacle in the wilderness. You had a house of meeting where um, you, it was a communal center and you would meet all your mates and you'd sit now, and, and okay, you maybe met once a week as well, but um, the community, it was part of the community. And that was where you went and you sat and you had a glass of wine or a cup of coffee with your friends or whatever they drank then. And then it also had a house of prayer where you went and you studied and actually men and women were both welcome there. And, and that was a quieter area where you got the, the Torah down, you got the law down and you studied it. And the synagogue sort of continued after that. I mean, it, was, it wasn't realistic and practical for everybody to go to Jerusalem to the temple. So you continued with the synagogue, but it continued as primarily a communal meeting place. Mm. Uh, and so it was modeled on the temple. We tend to think the temple was this women's court and the men's court and then the Holy of Holies. But in fact, the women's court was where Jesus preached from. And it was called that because the women were free to come and go and breastfeed and uh, look after the kids. But the men sat there with them very, very often or mingled with them. And it was a great open space. And if the women wanted, they could walk right through the, the men's court and take their gifts. So there wasn't kind of a distinction, a kind of a distinction between men and, men and women that we tend to think there was at the beginning of Judaism. But for instance, if you look in the little local synagogues, there was no gallery. That's the first thing you notice. Men and women were integrated, they sat together. And it was only the influence of Islam a few centuries later that caused this division between men and women. So you just said that Jesus taught in the women's court. Mm -hmm. Whereabouts did you find that in the, in the scriptures? That's really interesting. 
It isn't so much in the scriptures, though, if you read the script, once you know, if you start to read the scriptures, you'll realize it, and you look at the map of the temple, you'll see that basically there was very little other place for him to preach. It was the main focal point, it was the central point. But where we've learned all this is from um, studies in archaeology that are going on currently at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem uh, and around Israel. Uh, they found inscriptions at the synagogue of mother of the synagogue and president of the synagogue, and it was obvious they were female. I mean, this is quite radical, really. Yeah. I was only in Jerusalem um, about a month ago with my uh, son Isaac, my dad. We went on a little church trip, took my dad, who was three generations of Rogerses with us, and we went to that, you know, the big map of Jerusalem that's there at the museum, and we looked at the temple, and... I even said at that point, oh, yeah, this is where the women would gather. And, and I hadn't, until you've said that, I've not clocked that actually Jesus was teaching. That is where Jesus was teaching. Of course it was. Yeah, uh, you've just helped me add two things up that I'd never thought about my, myself until you've said that. And with all the children running around and grabbing at his robes and things, yeah. I think this is why it's so important to understand. I talk a lot about reading the Bible from an Easterner perspective, not a Westerner perspective. Uh, location, understanding the location of where Jesus is saying what he's saying or where the prophets are saying really helps us understand why they are saying what they are saying. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's right there at the festival of lights in the temple, the giant menorah. You know, Absolutely. With these blazing lights, he gave light to the whole of Jerusalem, to all the pilgrims as they walked up. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, these lights will go out. But I am the light of the world. I don't go out. I mean, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's, it's sort of hairs, hairs on the back of your neck stuff. It, it is wonderful. It really is. So I want to just keep digging into this idea. So mm. for us as Christians, why is it important that we allow Jesus to be Jewish? Why is it important for us to remember that, particularly reading of the scriptures and our teaching? Why is that important? We just need to whiz back again a few centuries to the fourth century when Christianity became the institutional religion of the Holy Roman Empire under Constantine. And uh, that was when his mother, you, wherever she thought Jesus had put, a, put his feet, she built horrid, enormous, great sort of mausoleum-like church. But then you've got all these councils. You've got Council of Nicaea and the Council of Antioch and the Council of Laodicea, where they're looking at building a credo for the Christian faith. But they then add things like you could be excommunicated for holding a Jewish festival. And if you were clergy and you associated or went to a Jewish festival, you could be defrocked. And um, Passover was moved right away from Easter, so the association wouldn't be made. It was moved to the pagan feast of Easter, which is Easter. And there were lots of rules and regs like that that finally severed um, Christians from their Jewish roots. So I'd want to say to most Christians today, you didn't just lose your Jewish roots. They were hacked off deliberately. And that unless we get hold of them and put Jesus back into that context, we are missing so much. Let me just give you one example. I mean, when I first became a Christian, I used to say things in Bible study groups and everybody would look at me and say, what on earth is that they're talking about? Didn't understand at all. You have, for example, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he says, uh, the cup of blessing which we bless, 
is it not an introduction to the blood of uh, and, and, and a bread of, of Jesus? And then he talks about um, so let's celebrate the feast of the, fe the, the feast of Passover without malice. And for me, as a Jew, cup of blessing is the third cup in the Passover. Now, the third cup in the Passover is taken immediately after the meal. You've had, a, you've had this wonderful introduction in the story of the, the, the escape from Egypt and the freedom from slavery of the Jewish people. Incidentally, a wonderful picture for us of our freedom from slavery as Christians. And you have this slap-up meal, and then you have the cup of blessing, followed immediately by something called the afikoman. It's a middle piece of unleavened bread that is hidden, ransomed back by the kids, Grandpa's hidden it, and he's got to pay a lot of money to get it back. And um, the kids love that. And it is the symbol of the Passover lamb. And it is then broken immediately after the cup of blessing. Um, and for me, I knew straight away that has to be communion. It has to be that moment. Jesus is saying, I'm the Passover lamb. He's saying, you know, I'm the cup of blessing for you. However, there's a final cup after the cup of blessing. There are four cups, and the fourth cup afterwards, at the very end of the meal, is the cup of wrath. And then Jesus goes out into Gethsemane. And I think he was saying, as he left them then, that cup of, I don't like to talk about anger of God, because I think we get the wrong impression. I don't think God is angry. I think he is a just God. But I think Jesus was going out and saying, whatever that justice requires in order that I can now free you completely from your sin, so you have escaped from Egypt once and for all, I am now going to do by going to the cross. So I had it all there. And I used to say this to people, and they used to think, what on earth is that girl talking about? So it's really to understand Jesus being Jewish really places Jesus in a world that allows us to understand his teaching in a more profound, I mean, the gospel is the gospel. You read it on surface level, you, you get it. You get it, don't you? But there are levels here to the teaching of mm -hmm. Jesus, the life of Jesus, that as you start to place him as this Jewish Messiah, so in, in you've just mentioned communion. I, I regularly during communion reference the painting of the blood on the doorposts of the houses. Death is not welcome here. And I often say Jesus' blood is painted on the doorposts of the universe. Death is not welcome here. Just to try and anchor us back to this, this, this Jewish Messiah, the, the Passover. In fact, we've done Passover at Old Hallows uh, almost every other year since we've been here. It, we were due to have it this year, but we couldn't because of lockdown. And yeah, uh, we were my, going to do one. Yeah. It's, it's one of our congregation, he looks Jewish and he always, he always reads the father's part and I do the children's part. Um, but yeah, placing Jesus in that world is so important. I mean, can you give us another example of, if you understand Jesus as Jewish, then this thing here really makes more sense. Have you got another example of that? Yeah, I mean, for example, when Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. You need to know, for example, that for a Jewish act of worship to be ratified, uh, I'm not so much talking about a family festival or celebration, but if, for example, you're going to have prayers for the dead, um, there's a whole week of mourning after somebody dies in Judaism and everybody piles in to the mourner's home. Sev uh, Shiva. Hebrew for seven, for seven nights. And you have prayers every single night. Now you can't say those prayers unless there are 10 men 
present. In Reformed Judaism, they'd now say 10 men or women. It's called a minyan. Uh, and in order to have that, you have to have these 10 people. You can't, you can't have the service. So <laughs> Jesus is saying, forget all of that. Forget that altogether. If, if there are just a couple of you there, that's all that matters. I will be with you and I will hear your prayers. You do not have to have 10 at least to be heard. Mm. So it's actually shifting it, isn't it? Oh, it's interesting. I like that. I really like that. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Because I remember, you know, every night when we had prayers after my father died, you know, we were all sort of uh, stressed up. Are we going to get 10 men? My brother ringing around saying, you are coming tonight, you are, you know. <laughs> but the business of taking the, the foundations of this beautiful faith, the Jewish faith, and, and in a way, not simplifying, that undermines it completely, but bringing it to a place where everybody can, God can be accessible for everyone. I mean, and where, there are, yeah. where there are barriers before, Jesus is dismantling them and making access to God easier. And he did that all through his ministry, didn't he? I mean, all, all through his ministry, he's, he challenges the Pharisees. And that's great. He can do that because he comes from the Pharisaic tradition. You know, I can say Jewish, I can tell Jewish jokes much more easily than somebody who's not Jewish. And I can criticize uh, more easily. And, and, and Jesus could do that because he came from this uh, um, Pharisaic tradition. I think we need to remember the Pharisees, were the, it was the renewal movement at the time. Yeah. They wanted more of God. They wanted to, to have him close. And the only way they knew to do that was to have more rituals. And uh, Jesus was actually saying to them, you've got stuck. Your renewal movement has just died. Uh, and you need to, you know, uh, th there's so much that you're missing. So we need to remember, we haven't inherited the Jewish laws and rituals. Jesus came once and for all. The, the, the rituals, I wouldn't say the law, because we've got to be quite careful about that, because he fulfilled the law and the law, for example, the Ten Commandments are still absolutely essential to any community. Uh, I don't call them commandments. I call them instructions or um, God's, not suggestions, because they're more than that. But they're, they're what makes a community function. I link them with the ketubah, yeah. the Jewish wedding certificate. Yes, the ketubah, yes. And, and this idea that before a married couple would get married, they made an agreement. How would this marriage work? How are we going to thrive in this relationship? And therefore, God says to us through these, um, we've got the, the only language we've got is Ten Commandments, but through, through these commands, are a, this is how the marriage relationship between the divine and humanity is going to work. And actually, when you see them from that perspective, they're actually not oppressive in the way that we often think they're oppressive. They're actually liberating. Uh, it's all about humanity thriving rather than being oppressed. Um, but we read them from the wrong perspective, don't we? I think I love that you say that, because I think that when you actually read the description of what goes on on Sinai, um, God is actually, he then actually says to people, and will you have me to be your God? And they say, we will. <laughs> will you obey these instructions? We will. So it, it is, it's very like a, a marriage, isn't it? And it's, it's got, an act of love. You've even um, looked at the language that God uses in the Exodus story for the people of God is my treasured possession, which is a, a marriage term uh, the groom to the bride will you be my treasured possession and god uses the same language to the people of god 
I think it's lovely. And I, I, you know, when I, sometimes when I look at the stories of the children of Israel in the wilderness, they're all bad. It's all, all the things, the disobediences and the lack of faith and the lack of belief. But there's a wonderful verse in Jeremiah that says, I remember how much you loved me. I remember how much you came after me in the wilderness and I loved you and we have this special marriage relationship. That's what God remembers. He doesn't remember all the mess. He remembers the love and the intention, the intention to love. Amazing. So I've got a question here. So I asked a few of my congregation, uh, I was about to speak to you, what, what would they like to ask? And this is one of the questions. Um, who are God's chosen people? We get the picture from the Bible that the Jewish people are God's olive tree, is, is chosen people, and that the Christians are a branch that is grafted on. Uh, and so, you know, so, you know, Jesus brings us into this place. Uh, are we, are the Jewish people still the chosen people and we're kind of lumped in, or are we now a part of the chosen people of God? I think... Um yeah the, the the gentile people are grafted definitely grafted in that is one picture but i see you know when you've grafted i've got a grafted uh, crab apple tree in the garden here it is it, you know the grafted bit is fully in fact it's a major part of the tree yeah. and so um i i don't think that you know that sort of oh that the gentiles are a last minute consideration yeah. we know that right from the beginning in abraham that was god's intention that the gentile people would come in and his chosen would be abraham's children by faith not by blood and so uh, i love uh, in revelation that the the two olive trees and i think one is is definitely the church and the other possibly probably the jewish people because i don't think he ever i mean Yes, there is failure on the part of the Jews to recognize Jesus the Messiah. But don't we fail as Christians too? Don't we mess up? Uh, and what sort of a God is it that would say, right, I'm finished with you lot now. Mm. And I can't believe he is finished. But I think um, th those middle verses of the book of Romans, you know, that people always miss out because they're not sure what they mean. I think it's 9, 10 and 11, where, where Paul talks about God's love for the Jewish people. It seems quite clear that he will have not the whole Jewish people, but there will be an element within the Jewish people of those who've loved and followed him, um, who will definitely be, the other, I think, the other olive tree. And... and and I think now, even now, the dividing wall of partition is broken down. For those of us who are in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And uh, so we are chosen together. And we are part of Abraham's, the promise, the covenant made with Abraham. Yeah. So one of the questions I got is a bit of an odd one. So uh, I'll go with it for a moment. She was quite keen to ask you this question. It was, um, if Jewish men were circumcised, Messianic Jews don't need to be circumcised. Uh, but are they? <laughs> well, I said, is that the, all the questions you, I could be asking right now? Is that the one you really? Should, yeah, that's really what I want to ask. I was like, okay. I think that's <laughs> um, if a, a Jewish man it becomes a Christian, he'll be already circumcised, so that won't be an issue. Um, the question has come up though for our son and his his boys. What does he do? And he felt that if he wanted them to be an acceptable part of the Jewish community, using the male loose, if ever they went to a synagogue, that it might be quite important. So he has decided to go ahead with that, but um, Abby hasn't. 
Um, our daughter hasn't done that for her boys. She doesn't feel it's necessary. And I, I, I see the pros and cons of both. I don't think it's necessary at all, but if, if they really want to be the accepted part of the Jewish community, which they may or may not want, then you probably would have to be. Michelle, thank you so much. That is our, our time is up, which I, I don't think is fair because actually I've got so many more things I'd love to talk to you about. You love to chat on. think about Jesus and the church and the people of God really resonates with, with me and what we're passionate about. So thank you so much for giving this time. And if it's okay, I'd love to spend another episode with you at some point uh, to just ask you some more uh, bits and pieces around how we connect uh, the faith, Jesus and who he was and his culture, uh, his birthright, his family, the location that he lived, all together with how we would like. I'd love to ask you more about Well, that. I'd love that. I'd love to spend more time with you at, uh, and your lovely folk at All Hallows. That would be such an honour. If people want to know more, um, if you want to read some of the things that you've written, where can they go? Tell us about the books that you've, you've written. I have a website if you just tap Michelle with one L and Guinness with two N's and S's into the internet or, or into Google. Uh, my website will come up um, www.michelle.guinness.co.uk. Um, I've written several books and they're all listed there. There are also on the website, there are resources for people to use if they want to do a, a, a Sabbath uh, night on a Friday night or to do a whole Passover or Chris to have a go at a Tabernacles Harvest Festival uh, it's all there um, I've written a couple of books really on the Jewish Christian theme called one called Chosen which is my story uh, how I became a Christian and what it's meant to me and how I've adapted to the church and how the church has adapted to me and then um, the Heavenly Party which contains a lot of guidelines for people who want to have a go at some Jewish stuff Christian, Christian stuff the Jewish way. I know, I get you. Michelle, thank you so much. We, I know I've appreciated this little bit of time with you. I know the listeners will have done as well. So thank you so much. And I really think it'd be great to get you to come and talk through some more of that stuff to help us unlock Jesus and who he is. Because I think to really understand his heritage really helps us understand even the pictures that he teaches from. Uh, the metaphors that he uses are so Jewish. So I think mm. we need to definitely have some more time together. But, but thank you so much for our time. Great. Grace and peace. Thank you, Chris.